Hello, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre here at UCL, and today I'm speaking with Maurice Steele. Maurice is a researcher at Osnabrück University in Germany, working at the Institute for Migration Research and Intercultural Studies there. Before that, he was a lecturer in international relations at the University of Sheffield here in the UK, and he's also taught at the University of Warwick and the University of California, Davis. Maurice's research focuses on migration struggles in contemporary Europe and Africa, and is broadly situated in the fields of international political sociology, political geography, and migration, citizenship, and border studies. His book, Migrant Resistance in Contemporary Europe, was published in 2019 with Routledge, and he has written many excellent, excellent papers, chapters, and essays on Europe's borders, on humanitarianism and its contradictions, on varied forms of migrant activism, and one of the main reasons I wanted to speak to Maurice today and something I really appreciate in his work is his persistent attention in his writing to questions of migrant struggle, subjectivity, autonomy and the question of freedom. Maurice has also been involved with the Alarm Phone Collective since its founding, a group dispersed around Europe and Africa that provides a hotline for people in distress at sea as they try to make dangerous crossings. So thanks so much for speaking with me, Maurice. Thanks, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start with quite a broad question, which is about, I mean, your work and the range of things you've focused on has been about the bordering of Europe. So I wanted to ask what's been going on at the borders of Europe since the pandemic, whether you can give us a sketch of any shifts in the routes that people on the move are taking and how they're being confronted by state authorities and EU authorities and how varied humanitarian and activist groups are seeking to intervene in these spaces. Yeah, so the situation at the external borders of Europe continue to be pretty devastating. And maybe I'll just give you three snapshots from three regions, because I think they, in some ways, symbolize the current state of affairs there. And they are first a sort of brutalization of border enforcement, then the externalization of border violence, and third, a concerted attack on forms of solidarity at borders. And I move first to the Aegean, because I think here we can see most explicitly this sort of brutalization of border enforcement, right? So the Greek authorities push back, and these pushbacks now have become the norm, right? So this is what we have to expect when the Coast Guards detect a migrant boat. And these pushbacks work in a really horrible way, right? So say a Coast Guard vessel detects a migrant boat, the boat is stopped, the people on board are beaten, especially the men. The boat is then dragged back into Turkish territory and abandoned there, the engine disabled. All the people are taken on board of the Coast Guard vessel, beaten, robbed. They take away phones, money and all that stuff. And then they are brought back to Turkey and left on these sort of floating devices, right? Maybe you've seen these images, these orange floating tents or whatever you want to call them. And they're just abandoned there and left in distress until hopefully the Turkish forces come and rescue the people. So this has become the norm and it's devastating, obviously, for the people on the move, but also it poses, I think, a real dilemma for anyone engaging in solidarity with the people on the move because, you know, who do we call if there are people in distress, right? There are no civil rescuers in the Aegean because they were all criminalized and they're not present anymore. And also another dilemma is that the right wing government really wants to be seen as anti-migration. And so like revealing human rights abuses for them is maybe not even a big deal, right? They sort of appreciate that in some ways. So 
it's a real problem. And then, of course, you have other elements there, you know, Frontex, the EU border agency, suppressing information about the pushbacks. We have the EU Commission offering support to Greece and lauding Greece as sort of Europe's shield and all that stuff. So the brutalization of border enforcement is really clear in the Aegeans. Then when we move to the Western Mediterranean and the Atlantic, so people trying to reach Spain, Situation is somewhat different because people are being rescued more or less, you know, by the Spanish Salvamento Maritimo. And of course, Spain has a sort of left-wing government, at least on paper. And so they're not really keen on being seen as the Greek government as a sort of perpetrator of anti-migrant violence, right? But what they're doing, and this we can see all around Europe, is they're really keen on externalizing border violence. So they are really financing the Moroccan regime so that people don't reach Spain, either via the sea or via the fences to the Spanish enclaves. And so what this does is, of course, on the one hand, you know, externalizes border enforcement to authorities and regimes that really carry out brutal attacks on people on the move. On the other hand, I think it creates incentives for these regimes to still allow certain mobilities to cross into Spain and to create these border spectacles because they always have to make a point that, look, you know, there are still people crossing. We still need more funding and money and all that stuff. And so what this leads to are these horrible scenes that we saw earlier this year with 37 people dying at the Milia border fence. You know, they were chased by the Moroccans also toward the fence. There were some reconstructions of the events, people dying on piles of humans were, you know, left to die. It was like an incredibly violent spectacle. And I think the images were really seen worldwide. But these are the effects of these externalized forms of border violence. And, you know, shortly after, Morocco was promised half a billion euro for border security from the EU, right? And at the same time, we also see other forms of mobility that are really deadly, especially to the Canary Islands. So people leaving the Western Sahara or even, you know, Senegal, Mauritania and so on to reach the Canaries. And right now a boat with 53 people is still missing. Only a week ago, a boat with 49 people capsized. And so nobody really hears about these mass shipwrecks in the Atlantic. And maybe briefly, the sort of third example from another border region is from the central Mediterranean context. And here, you know, we see the same, right? We see violent border enforcement. We see the externalization of violence, but we really see an attack on solidarity at the border, right? Because it's only in the central Mediterranean where civil rescuers are operating since 2014. And they face a lot of harassment by various EU state authorities. So the NGOs are not allowed to land, or at least their landing is delayed. Once they are at the European ports, they are often not allowed to return to the central Mediterranean. The crews of the NGOs are not really protected from attacks by the Libyan Coast Guards, right? And as everyone knows, really, activists and captains are repeatedly brought before court, right? And they're criminally harassed. And now, of course, also with the new Italian government, fascist, post-fascist, whatever you want to call it, you know, they, as the first thing, sought a sort of direct confrontation with the NGOs. And so this is the attack on solidarity. And I think it's so crucial to look at that because on the one hand, it's meant to prevent NGOs from rescuing in the first place and disembarking people in Europe. But on the other hand, it is also meant to prevent them from monitoring what's going on at the borders because they are monitoring, they are documenting what's going on. And so this sort of criminalization or this sort of lawfare is really meant to get them out of this space. 
And then also, I think I want to briefly mention the criminalization of boat drivers, right? Which is really something that hardly anyone looks at. But it's so important because, you know, boat drivers themselves are people fleeing. They are crossing the Mediterranean not to make business or money, but to just reach Europe. And now we see a really sort of systematic criminalization of them. And in Greece, you know, I think they are maybe even the highest prison population in Greece. It's it's mad. Also in Italy, you know, it's a high percentage of people in prisons who are criminalized as drivers or as smugglers. So that's a real problem that I think we need to look at. So, yeah, just these sort of three snapshots from the borders and these patterns, you know, we can see to different degrees, I think, all around Europe. I think we should really look into how this plays out in specific contexts. But I think, yes, we can draw sort of larger parallels between these patterns. Can we pause on the central med for a little longer? I guess a few follow up questions. I wasn't aware that the central med is the only place where there's civil response, the boats, etc. So could you say a little bit more about why that is and whether there are moves to have that in the Aegean or in the Western Mediterranean? But also I realise there are pushbacks the central Mediterranean to Libya, which rely on Frontex, for example, their drone surveillance and feeding information to the Libyan Coast Guard. So in a way, that form of externalization. And we'll talk more about the sea space, the jurisdictional space of whose waters and international waters, etc. But that might be an important thing to draw attention to, the role of aerial surveillance and drones in kind of outsourcing to the Libyan Coast Guard, those interceptions before they reach European waters. And maybe you could say a bit more about the boat steerers. I mean, I think that in the kind of liberal press, in the UK context at least, we do hear more stories about the captains, the sea captains, the humanitarian actors who, with incredible bravery and solidarity, etc., are doing their work in this space and who are sometimes facing criminal punishment. But why is there such an absence of our shared knowledge or reporting on the boat drivers? Are these individuals who I assume are just people on the move like others and who end up being delegated to steer or maybe they have some skills or whatever it might be? They're getting long sentences. I mean, if you're talking about one of the biggest populations in prison in Greece and also in Italy, we're we're talking about a significant population here, much greater numbers than the captains and the humanitarian actors who, unfortunately, you know, there aren't enough of. (laughs) It's difficult to get enough people to help in the sea. Yeah. So sea rescue only occurs really in the central Mediterranean, and there are various reasons for that. But, you know, in 2015, 2016, we did see rescues also around the Greek islands. We saw lifeguards going there to help out, to rescue. We saw others sort of swatting boats in distress and so on. But like over the years, because migration became such a toxic and sort of regulated issue in Greece, they were basically chased away by the government, right? It became increasingly difficult to enact any sort of forms of direct solidarity with people on the move. And so a lot of these NGOs that were present there decided at some point to leave because they just couldn't guarantee the safety of their members. And in the other border regions, there are also no rescuers because, say, around Spain, at least, you know, there is the sense that the Spanish Salvamento Maritimo, the sort of rescue organization there, is doing a pretty good job, right, in comparison to other border regions. And so there is this focus on the central Mediterranean. And I think it is important to also look elsewhere and to think about whether the civil fleet or however you want to call it should also move to other regions, right? Because I was earlier talking about the Atlantic crossings, you know, and they are so deadly and so many boats get lost there. So might it be useful to also have aircraft in that region sort of monitoring the space, right? And trying to find boats. And I think there are some of these discussions ongoing, but so far there has been this focus on the central Mediterranean. And yeah, I think when we think about the central med, 
it's super important to think about it as a space that is monitored constantly through area surveillance by Frontex airplanes, by Frontex drones, but also by Coast Guard's National Air Force and stuff like that. So it's not a space that is just sort of out there in open seas. Nobody knows what's going on. Actually, there are a lot of actors that are constantly sort of crisscrossing this space. I think that's important. And at the same time, right, often area surveillance is justified by, you know, saying that because of that, people are being rescued, right? Clearly, this is not the case. On the one hand, these aerial missions often do not report boats to the nearest assets to the boats in distress. So like if there's an NGO vessel and it could intervene following maritime law, international law and so on, they should be notified. Often this is not the case, right? So there's a sort of information blackout. And so instead of informing rescuers, the Libyan authorities are informed and then they send vessels that were donated by Italy and, and Europe to chase after the migrant boats and to basically capture them and abduct them back to Libya, right? And so we see a real sort of system of capture in the central Mediterranean Sea where there's aerial monitoring, which is directly connected to the capture of people trying to flee. And about the criminalization of drivers, right? It has become such a deeply problematic and systematic issue that we really need to pay more attention to that. As you said, there's has always been a lot of attention paid to European rescuers, right? Carola Rakitic, for example, the German captain who steered the boat into the harbor of Lampedusa despite Salvini, you know, trying to keep them out. And that produced a lot of attention, a lot of solidarity, which is really great. But what often falls out of sight are these migrant captains that are often just sent to the steering wheel or to the engine to direct the boat, who may hold the satellite phone or a compass or whatever. And when they arrive, people are being questioned and they are really trying to always get one or two or three people from every boat to then, you know, criminalize them as smugglers so that they can say that they are still engaging in these anti-smuggling operations, right? Everyone involved knows that this is not the problem here. These people are not the ones organizing the crossings. They are not what Europe often refers to as the big masterminds or the traffickers. They're just simple, you know, human beings not really involved in any of that, just trying to reach a place of safety. So I think this migration issue and, you know, critical engagement with imprisonment, I think, has to really go together, right? I think these two issues are deeply linked in the European context. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the work of Alarmfo. I know you've been involved with that group, which is a broad network. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the group does and its kind of scope geographically, which is the thing I'm really interested in, the transnational, you know, even intercontinental ways of organising around safe passage. Sure. I think we have to situate it a bit in the context, right? So in 2011, with the Arab uprisings, boat crossings to Europe increased and also, of course, death at sea. So at least 1,500 people died just that year. And in response to that, a lot of activists in Europe and Africa tried to think about ways to prevent death at sea and to intervene in this sort of water space. And already then there were some discussions about launching civil rescue missions or operations. 
But because of financial issues and so on, because it's incredibly expensive, these ideas were dismissed. And then there was a Eritrean Italian priest called Father Musizarai, who lived in Rome. And he received a lot of calls from especially Eritreans who were in distress at sea. So they would call him and send their GPS positions to him. And he would then alert the authorities in Italy and also sort of try to pressure them to do something about the boats in distress, right? So he did this for several years. And we saw this as an inspiration, right? And we thought, okay, this is actually something practical we can do and we can collectivize it because also he was obviously as one person not able to respond to all distress cases and it was really tough on him. And so we asked him whether we should do that. He said, like, don't start tomorrow, you know, start today. <laughs> and uh, it took a bit longer because we had to set up all the systems, of course, to make this hotline work. And so the alarm phone came about in October 2014, and it works like a hotline, right? So people, our shift teams, they are behind the phone 24-7. When calls come in, they have then certain manuals for a variety of distress situations. Because the distress situations are so different in the different regions, it needs sort of constant revising, reworking of the manuals that we use. So over time, more and more people started calling alarm phone, right? Because in the beginning, it was just an idea. Like we didn't know whether people would actually call this hotline, this sort of random activist hotline, but they did. And of course, it was, I think, also good timing because then 2015 happened, right? Over 1 million people crossing the maritime borders. And so very quickly, the number was shared within migrant communities that were traveling. You know, when they had good experiences with alarm phones supporting them would pass it on. And I think this was key to really get trust within certain migrant communities who couldn't rely on state authorities in assisting them and who then turned to activists. And so, yeah, we've done this now for eight years. We've supported more than 5,000 boats in distress. And as you said, this is a transborder network. So this is a network that operates from various European countries, African countries, Tunisia, Morocco, Senegal in particular. And that has to be transport in a sense, because the issues that we deal with are transport, right? They are mobile. So it's not just sort of sitting there and responding to phone calls, but it is a lot of on the ground engagement, trying to get information of certain migrant routes, certain patterns, certain ways or modalities of movement, right? What do people carry with them? We also try to share information how to cross in a safe way. What do you need to consider when you actually do the crossing? How much fuel do you need? What kind of life jacket should you wear? You know, what kind of devices should you carry? What do you do if you end up in a distress situation? What do you do if your engine stops? Can you try to reignite the engine? How do you make your distress seen, right? Can you use certain device that you have on board to like reflect certain lights so that people might see you in the distance? All these things are done also on the ground, right? So in Morocco, in Tunisia and elsewhere. So there is a huge network that has come about over the years. We are more than 300 activists now. And it's really sort of on the ground solidarity, you know, with people on the move to really try to think what is useful for people on the move, why they move. And of course, it's also about really documenting human rights violations, right? I mean, you know, we have not only, unfortunately, accompanied boats that then capsize with like thousands dying in the end, but we've also documented a range of human rights violations, you know, all these pushbacks in the Aegean, pushbacks in the central Mediterranean, forms of non-assistance, of abandonment, all that kind of stuff. 
And for us, this is also important, right? If we cannot prevent them, at least we have to document them. And we have to create sort of an archive of border violence because nobody else is really, really doing that. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's also a beautiful network. It's like really a transporter network with people who are engaged, but also who come from really different sort of places and have different backgrounds, right? And I think what grounds us is this sort of everyday practice of being on the phone. It's like a duty and it's tough. When we started this, of course, you know, it's difficult to foresee where we would end up. And it's also slightly daunting, I think, to start a project that you can never stop really, right? Because a lot of people rely on that and you know that. So let's see how long it continues, but I fear it will go on for quite some time. I've been reading the eight years of alarm phone document, Voices of Struggle, which I'd recommend anyone listening download and learn more about and support alarm phone in any way you can. But I was reading that document and it's really clear that, you know, many of the people who are involved in the organization might be those who, as you say, are living in Morocco, Tunisia, so not necessarily European citizens or those who have been on the move themselves. But I was just thinking about the challenges of working with family and friends in the context of shipwreck and in the context of loss. So if you could say a little about the challenges of working in this context, and perhaps that leads you into telling us a little bit about Alarm Phone's commemoration activities, which I think are really worth pausing on as well. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that when a boat capsizes and people die, you know, their bodies are often not found. The issue then is that if bodies are not found, there's no evidence that people have died. Even if we were on the phone with them a minute earlier and we believe that they capsized, there could be other reasons why the connection was cut, right? The battery might be low or they might have dropped the device into the sea or, you know, loads of reasons why communication ended. And so sometimes we just cannot say for sure that these people died. And of course, we also don't talk to a 100 people on board, but a couple of people. And so we don't know their names or you know, their full names, at least. We don't know where they are from often. Sometimes we can sense, of course, by you know the different languages they speak and sometimes they tell us also their nationalities and all that stuff. But more often than not, we talk to people who we obviously don't know, where we have very little information about them. And so if they disappear, we cannot really inform their relatives or friends, but they sometimes contact us, right? And I think this is something that has really increased over the years, also because it seems like more people just sort of distrust big organizations as well, or they don't get the support they're looking for there. And so they contact Alarmphone. Now, Alarmphone is a distress hotline, so it cannot necessarily do all this other work, but it's trying to do that, at least to note down names and other details about the missing and then try to find out information about them. If there was a shipwreck at around the time they thought the boat departed in a certain region. But this is huge work and, you know, it's very rare that there is a sort of match. But sometimes we are able to reconstruct certain shipwrecks, especially when we were in touch with the people for a long time. We have maybe more details or friends in Libya and so on reach out and they then provide a list of names, for example. So this happens, but it's quite rare. And so because it's also such a daily reality and experience of our members and of so many people, you know, we see that this violence reverberates, right? It does not stay in the Mediterranean. So those who suffer are not only those who die, but family and friends. And so this is always something that I find so, so devastating in a sense, right? That this border violence that affects like whole communities in the global south. It's mad how many people die and how many people are affected by this death and disappearance. 
And so in order to find a way of accounting also for this loss and grievance, there are many actors that engage in what we started calling commemorations a couple of years ago. So commemorations connected with actions to commemorate those who've lost or disappeared and to also like blame those who are responsible for their disappearance and death. And so this has really spread and we see a lot of commemorations taking place on the anniversary of big shipwrecks in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Senegal, in Sudan, loads of places. So yeah, organizing with families, I think, has become really central because we see it as another aspect that we have to engage with because nobody else is doing that. And to think also about what families need, right? Of course, first of all, they need clarity about the fate of their loved ones which they might never get. So 10 years ago, I was in Palermo and I met a lot of the Tunisian mothers of the disappeared. And I was in Zarziz in Tunisia only a few months ago and I met some of them again. So they still have no idea about what happened to their children. And they still are so traumatized about this disappearance, but they are also still fighting. And I think this is what connections are also meant to be, these sort of encounters between those who are directly affected, people in solidarity, and really organizing to protest. So we did a lot of marches in Zarziz and other places in Tunisia. We did commemorations also in Europe at the same time. So it has become really a transborder international movement, I think, that has very sort of specific grievances and different cultures of grieving as well. But that still unites these different actors and groups, I think, in thinking about where this violence comes from and then trying to target those that have perpetrated these forms of violence. So I think corrections are a real central struggle, I think, around borders these days. Maybe we should talk briefly about the channel because we're speaking on the 15th of December. Yesterday, we all woke to hear of another shipwreck, a boat that capsized in the channel. And I mean... This is a fairly new development in terms of the uptick in the number of people crossing the channel by boat. So it's become another hotspot in a way of maritime crossing and risk. 45,000 people, according to the British government, have made the journey so far this year, which is significant. I know that Alarm Fern actually released a statement yesterday evening, and I'll read a little passage of that. They wrote, details of the event are still emerging, but the location of the initial search and rescue operation on the borderline separating British and French territorial waters recalls the situation which led to the deaths of 32 people last year. That was in November 21, I think. And again, raises questions about the coordination of the French and English Coast Guard in their duties to save lives at sea. So we know that at least four people have died. I don't know if we know their names yet. Probably not. We know that this is a problem that's partly caused by a question about a border in the sea and about who's responsible for that. Maybe you could just say a little bit about the channel crossings and a little bit about how the channel compares to some of these other sea crossings in terms of numbers. And I mean, it's a shorter crossing. So I assume it seems to me that it's a safer crossing than much safer than the Atlantic that you've described, for example. But can you say a little bit about the channel, which I'm worried about, especially at the moment, because just the day before this shipwreck, the Rishi Sunak government, who will be in power for who knows how long, but, you know, are trying to score political points again by promising to be tougher to deal with a backlog. But also, you know, signing plans with the French government to police the shores of the northern coast of France more aggressively, etc. Yeah, I think it's so timely now following the shipwreck yesterday and just this sort of hysteria in the UK about small boats, right? Small boat arrivals, which are, of course, a consequence of restrictive migration policies, right? I mean, it's not due to the work of smugglers and people loving to do the crossing by the sea, but because of migration policies. 
And I think it's important to then have actors that take on a perspective that is grounded in a sort of political structure around mobility activists and NGOs that have also long engaged in Calais and elsewhere and that know the conditions and the reasons why people are doing these crossings. And so that we are not only following these UK politicians who use migrants as scapegoats, which is such an easy thing to do, but unfortunately works so well. And so since the number of votes rose over the last few years, you know, there has been more attention also from activists and networks and NGOs. And since September 21, the channel then became officially Alarm Phone's fourth region. And besides accompanying people on the boats, as elsewhere, it's also here really important to just monitor state behavior because of the Tory government, because of ideas of maybe deterring or pushing back migrant boats that were, you know, discussed a lot. There are these questions around how French and British authorities reacted to the November 21 shipwreck with 30 people dying. So there are loads of questions and developments I think that we have to look at very closely. And so alarm from being there and counter monitoring state behavior, I think, is really key together with a lot of other activist networks that have been present there for many years already. And as you mentioned, also the incident yesterday raised certain questions, you know, about the cooperation between French and UK authorities and the speed of the response to the incident and so on. And in the end, I think fishermen were the first on the scene and they rescued the majority of the people. And I think it's also important to flag this up because, you know, these are the other forms of solidarity that exist in the sea at different maritime borders. You know, we spoke about rescuers, civil rescuers earlier, but of course there are others who are actually rescuing, right? They're fishermen, they are merchant vessel crews and all that. So I think it's important to show that there are so many seafarers who live up to the duty to rescue, right, despite what states want them to do. At the same time, I think, you know, while it's super important to monitor these developments, it's also important to stay nuanced and to not sort of draw simplistic parallels, I think, between the regions, right? All the regions are really different. All the ways in which authorities behave in these regions are different. And so Comparatively, the French and UK authorities have organized rescues fairly well so far. And this is also, of course, one of the reasons why the death toll is not as high in the channel. As you say, like the crossing is also not that long, but there are so many vessels moving around that space. So it's also really dangerous because of that. So it is still a dangerous passage. But there has not been this sort of widespread non-assistance or even pushbacks as we experienced in the Aegean or the Central Mediterranean. And I think this is important so that we don't sort of fall into this trap of maybe spectacularizing a situation which others are already spectacularizing all the time. But of course, it's key to really trace the border violence that occurs also in this space and to really monitor what will happen in this space, which is open. But when we trace this violence, we also have to then focus really on what happens on the ground, what happens before people make the crossing or try to make the crossing along the French coasts, you know, where police violence is really brutal and where they beat up people, harass people, racially profile people with impunity, right? So like we shouldn't sort of just focus on these sort of spectacularized crossings, but like really on this mundane everyday violence that people experience in France. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in this last year, really, the kind of RNLI, the lifeboats, because they're, you know, a charity funded largely by charitable donations that are very well liked by many people because of, I suppose, a shared understanding that being distressed at sea, that people who are drowning at sea 
or are in trouble is something that people seem to share a connection with, a sympathy, a kind of shared humanity at that level, which I think is really interesting when they intervene against a logic of, you know, because Pretty Patel, when Home Secretary was saying, we'll make floating barriers, we'll push people back, we'll act unilaterally to return votes, etc. You know, all these things which not only aren't workable because of the protections that are inherent to a liberal state, and I think we should recognise that we are in a context in which the French Coast Guard are kind of following people along until they enter UK water, that this is a fairly safe passage a lot of the time, it's worth recognising that. But also that there are actors, non-state actors, who might actually appeal to a broader constituency in something that's often polarised between those people like us who think people should be able to move through and those people who watch the seas for the signs of the interlopers, etc. Then there's another kind of block of people which might summon some shared sympathy and humanity, which I also think happened in 2015, right? Around images of people in distress and for all the limitations of focusing on children, etc. Something that was genuinely felt and that opened up the possibility of something else. And that leads me on, I guess, to thinking about, which I see in your work and with other scholars and activists, which is trying to shift the gaze from always focusing on state and its ability to control and its spectacles of exclusion and to think instead about the kind of vitality, power and force of people on the move. And this obviously is part of the approach that you subscribe to and I do too, which is the autonomous kind of autonomy of migration approach. But a lot of people won't know exactly what that theoretical frame opens up. So maybe you could say a bit about how you find useful this idea about the autonomy of migration in your thinking and activism. Sure. I think I first came across this autonomy of migration literature when I started my PhD. And it was a sort of revelation. You know, it's embedded in sort of autonomous Marxist perspective, which focuses on material struggles as the engines of history. And I think that translated to migration meant that we should focus on those who engage in struggles over mobility. And I think, you know, in our really deeply unequal world, mobility, you know, when we take this perspective, is not just something that states organize, manage, control in a sort of neat way, right? Different sovereign states that are just sort of regulating mobility as they will, but migration is something that is politically fought over and mainly by the people on the move themselves, you know, as political subjects. And so I think this sort of shift in perspective was so important because it really ruptures this sort of state-centric, policy-centric perspective that still dominates studies on migration and borders, or these push-pull myths that see migration as a sort of water tap, right, that can be turned on, especially if you need more workers, and that can also then be turned off again. So the autonomy of migration really allows us, I think, to look into the contested practices of migration. And there are so many. And in my work, I try to trace some of them. And just related to, I think, the conversation we just had on the Central Mediterranean and to ground that a bit, you know, when the Meloni government came to power in Italy only a few months ago, there were these ideas that they would be able to end Mediterranean migration or that, you know, they would sort of reinforce the borders so that maybe nobody else would reach Italy. They would block all the boats before Italian harbors. And of course, it's still early days, right? But we still have to see what they have planned. But I think looking at these initial dynamics is interesting from an autonomous sort of perspective, because despite this culture war on the NGOs, or maybe because of this culture war on the NGOs, we see that what gets hidden are all these arrivals that take place all the time, regardless of the NGOs being blocked. So the Italian government is not able to prevent people from reaching Italian shores. 
they move further now than a few years ago because they know that they would probably not be rescued close to the shore of Libya. And so they organize in ways that allow them to make longer journeys. And at the moment, we see a lot of big boats coming from Tobruk in Libya, for example, 500, 600, 700 people. And of course, it's a super risky strategy, but it's in some ways, you know, too big to fail in a sense, right? Of course, if they fail, it's devastating. But so far, they've made the crossings because they're too big to be pushed back. And still a post-fascist, fascist government seems unable to let 700 people drown in front of their coasts. So we have this attack on the NGOs. At the same time, we have loads of people arriving. About 100,000 people have reached Italy this year, which is more than in the last four years. Despite all of the militarization of the sea borders, despite the Libyan coast guards and militias chasing after migrant boats, despite Frontex aerial surveillance, right? And so if we only follow these narratives of border control and policy and states proclaiming that they are able to end migration or control migration, then we are not able to account for these mobilities, right? How do people still arrive despite all of this, despite a whole system of border control that they have to encounter? And also, very recently, the EU Commission released a 20-point action plan on migration. You know, when I read this, it was quite hilarious because all these 20 points, you know, they are not new. They've existed for so many years and they have not worked for so many years, right? So they basically say the same things again and shows the sort of helplessness on the side of policymakers because they know that they cannot really clamp down on migration as they would like. And so they have the same recipes which really don't work. Which is obviously not to say that they are not trying and they are not being violent and the thousands of deaths every year are the price of that. But it's still to say that, you know, people are not sort of brought from one place to the other by smugglers or traffickers, if you know you follow European policymakers. But they organize their mobilities and they struggle again and again and again. So there are people who've been pushed back seven times and they tried for an eighth time. And so for me, the autonomy of migration really shifts our perspectives to ask, you know, where do we actually look when we think about migration, right? And how do we look at these mobilities? Do we only see them as victims who are transported from one place to the other, which is the dominant perception, I think, in Europe? You know, people as either victims of smugglers who don't really know anything about the sea and who just need to be sort of blocked in order to save their lives. Or do we see them as sort of agents with their own aspirations, their own desires, their own abilities? And if we take this perspective, what does solidarity then look like? It's solidarity then. It's not humanitarian responses to only victims, right? But then the response is one of solidarity. How can we assist people who are actually struggling over mobility? And so this perspective has informed my work, I think, you know, also in my book on migrant resistance. And for me, it's still central because there is still this focus on policy and on how states can regulate migration. At the same time, I also, you know, wanted to be quite critical about some aspects of it. So there are sometimes these ideas around autonomy, right? What does autonomy mean? I think it's a problematic term in itself, right? Because there are sometimes these ideas that migration precedes control which I think is super complicated an argument to make when we look at the visa regime and how people move, you know, also due to these structures in a precarious way in the first place. There are also these sometimes slightly problematic aspects that sort of romanticize migration. Like migration just happens regardless of circumstances and attempts to control it, right? But 
when we look at who moves, there's also then a gender perspective, an able-bodied perspective, because to overcome the sea, you have to be quite often able-bodied, right? It's very rare to see people who are not able-bodied to succeed in the crossing. So there are aspects, I think, where we have to ask who can move given the circumstances, right? And I think we have to be critical of the autonomy of migration in some ways, but we have to also think with it because it's also developing, right? As all theoretical academic approaches is not written in stone, it's being shaped, it's being improved, I think, as well. So for me, as a way, as a perspective, it's still incredibly valuable. I find that too. And I think you're right. Obviously, the question of what autonomy means is is contested. The definition I found useful is not necessarily that migration precedes control, but that there's always a kind of excessive, uncontrollable character to human movement and a kind of sheer vitality to people on the move. And that I would like to extend into thinking about what happens when people arrive as well, because my critique of autonomy of migration, perhaps it's not really a criticism so much as a building from, which is that there can be an emphasis on people on the move on hotspots of bordering and movement and on that tension in those specific places. Whereas because my work's focused more on people once they're in a place like London, the question then for me is once you open up an emphasis which is not on states' ability to control, on Europe as a fortress, and on states and on the EU always succeeding in doing what they're doing, and you start to see the ways in which so many people have crossed and have made lives with or without status, and then transform socially and culturally the places to which they arrive. Obviously, the place where I'm speaking from in East London doesn't make any sense without thinking of the histories of those who've moved here, often unwanted and racialized, and totally transformed them and defined the life of the place. What's exciting about it and what people resonate with and what people even understand to be the culture of this place in its multiplicity. And I think that's what's also interesting about autonomy of migration is that it gets us thinking about how those people on the move unsettle the space of the political And I suppose how people get thrown together in new ways. And this is something I see in the work you're describing of alarm firms, but how people who are thrown together in new ways under shared conditions might be prefiguring alternative ways of relating to or against nations and racial categories. And that's what I think autonomy of migration, where it could be built out as well, is to think about, you know, the work of people thinking about multiculture, anti-racist practices connected. Perhaps where does the figure of the migrant operate in the context of anti-racism in places where we have increasingly, you know, brown faces and high places, but new constituencies? I mean, what I'm trying to say is that there's a dead end way of thinking about migration, which is that what do we do about the fact that people are worried about migration as though the constituencies will stand still and we just need to triangulate and do, you know, opinion polls. When actually what's hopeful for us should be that the new constituencies are being formed and precisely the autonomy of migration is one of the sources of that. And hopefully the demographic racists are right and that this place, these places will be transformed by the fact of ceaseless human movement. Thank you so much, Maurice, for speaking with me. I think that was incredibly important and a helpful conversation. And hopefully people listening have got a lot to follow up on in their reading of Maurice's work and the work of the many people organising to help and assist people on the move. Thanks so much, Luke. It was really nice to chat with you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Roman Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.